0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's special event. My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of background, I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint really to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Our organization actually advocates for legislative changes to reduce and eliminate the practices of restraint and seclusion and make our schools safer for students, teachers, and staff. I am very excited today uh, to have Dr. Ross Green joining us for a live training event. Uh, This event is intended to support parents, teachers and others who are really during these challenging times. Uh, We have an amazing lineup over the next several weeks. We actually have speakers every week until uh, the end of May and probably we'll have more speakers after that as well. I do wanna let you know that we will be taking questions at the end of the presentation today. So hold on to your questions as we go throughout. Uh, Also today's event will be uh, recorded and we're gonna have that available on Facebook as well as YouTube. And also as an audio podcast, if you want to listen to that after the fact. So I want to now uh, transition into introducing uh, our my co-host here for today. Uh, so let me uh, introduce uh, to you uh, Beth Tully. And Beth is a director of educational strategy at the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. Beth retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for uh, early intervention for infants and toddlers. Her experience as a parent, a grandparent uh, of children who have had uh, behavioral challenges has fueled her passion to help improve the lives of children and their families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. So I want to begin by saying hi to Beth. Hello. And Beth, I know you, like me, uh, we're both huge fans of, of Dr. Green, and I wondered if you could go ahead and introduce him to our viewers and listeners today.
1: I'll do that, and I, um, I'm i going to read the introduction because I don't want to miss a single point in this. And then I'm going to say a few words um, of my own. So first of all, Ross Green, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and the originator of the innovative evidence-based approach called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions that we call, he calls, we all call, CPS. That's described in his influential books the Explosive Child, I don't show these very well. I don't know how to do the, the thing. The Explosive Child, Lost at School. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lost and Found. You have them all, too? Yeah. You also have, okay, do you have Raising? You have I, I don't
0: have that one handy, no, So I have them all. Okay.
1: And Lost and Found. Okay, so I'm a fan. He also developed and executive produced the award-winning documentary film, The Kids We Lose, which was um, released in 2018. Dr. Green was on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for over 20 years and is now the founding director, has been for a while, of the nonprofit Lives in the Balance. He's also adjunct associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Tech, Yay, Virginia, an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Green has worked with several thousand behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, and he and his colleagues have overseen implementation and evaluation of the CPS model in hundreds of schools, inpatient psychiatric units, and residential and juvenile detention facilities with dramatic effect. Significant reductions in recidivism, discipline referrals, detentions, suspensions, and use of restraint and seclusion. Dr. Green lectures throughout the world and lives in Portland, Maine. So a couple things I wanted to say. First of all, I bet you are going stir crazy not being able to travel, but I want to talk about personally, my first introduction was not to um, Dr. Green, but to his work when Uh, I accompanied my family to an outpatient, a psychiatric outpatient visit and saw this huge poster on the wall of um, Bill of Rights for Children with Challenging Behaviors. And I was so taken with that. I just loved it. Had to take a picture, sought everywhere to find out where that came from. I just loved it. And it took five more years before I was introduced to the explosive child, and that was a major game changer for me. That put me on the path that I've been on for the last four years, and um, changed changed my um, changed the direction of my life um, and work, and and um, the course of what's going on with 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 my family too. So anyway, I have a lot of gratitude, and I'm. Um, Really pleased to introduce
0: Dr. Green. and Welcome, Dr. Green.
2: Thank you, Beth and Guy. I really appreciate you asking me to do this. And um, for those who don't know you well, I want to acknowledge the fantastic work that you both are doing on behalf of kids and adults, to tell you the truth. Um, No adult wants to be involved in a restraint or seclusion either. So um, it's not just the kids who are helping here and um, not just the kids who are helping be more safe, by dramatically reducing or eliminating the use of restraint and seclusion in our schools and also in our facilities. So I'm delighted that you are um, doing what you're doing and um, uh, happy that you've invited me to do this.
0: All right, sounds great. Well, we will go ahead and bring up your presentation. And again, thank you for doing this. Um, as Beth said, we're, we're both huge fans of your work and appreciate the the opportunity to to work with you and so many others to try to influence change. And, and your work has made such a huge difference. So we will let you take it away and, and thank you.
2: Here we go. So as you already mentioned, uh, and first of all, welcome everybody. Um, thanks for joining in on this uh, either live or watching it uh, in some way or another. Um, the name of the model, of course, is Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, or CPS, um, and yes, it has been shown to be an extremely effective way to reduce or eliminate the use of restraint and seclusion, and not only in schools, but also in inpatient Sky units, residential facilities, and juvenile detention facilities. Um, um Let's get started, and as the subtitle says, we're gonna be talking here about new lenses, new timing, and new practices. Not exactly in that order, but the lenses are going to come first. And those of you who are familiar with my work um, and the model, these are not gonna be unfamiliar themes that you're about to start hearing. Um, because the bottom line is, if we're going to stop pinning kids to the ground, Uh, if we're going to stop throwing them in padded rooms when they get out of control, if we're going to keep them from getting hurt, if we want to keep the adults and their classmates safe too, we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them. What's interesting is we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them in many places, but there are many other places that are not using restraint and seclusion and that are keeping people very safe. So, Um, What's fascinating to me is that some folks see restraint and seclusion as sort of part of the job description, part of the um, range of interventions that are in their toolbox. If you're working with kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges, I do not agree with that. I think that um, I know that there are many places that are working with kids who have significant social, emotional, and behavioral challenges that are not using restraint and seclusion, either because... Those practices are against the law where they're practicing or because they have just made the moral choice to bend over backwards, not to use those practices. But to turn that around in many places, we are going to have to do some things differently. Can't just continue with business as usual and expect this to change. And what I usually find is that what needs to change the most are three things. Lenses, timing, practices. Let's start with our lenses. Whoops, that doesn't need to be in there. Um, Now, wait just a second. Guy, I have put up the wrong slide deck.
0: Hang on. No, no worries. Just go ahead and bring up the new one and, and um, hit share when you're ready.
2: What did I do? <laughs> I, hold on. I'll get it. What did I do?
0: Hang on. <laughs> That's all good. Just find your, your new deck and get it started and you'll be fine.
2: This is it, this is it, all right. sorry about that. Whew. Boy, that first slide told me that uh, something was the matter. Same title page. Here's our new lenses. Our new lenses consist of two key components. The first is the key theme of the entire collaborative and proactive solutions model. Kids do all well if they can. This is the belief that if this kid could do well, this kid would do well. If this kid isn't doing well, something must be getting in their way. Um, You'll soon hear what's getting in their way, but it's not what a lot of people still think is getting in their way. A lot of people are still wearing old lenses and still believe that challenging behavior is an attempt to seek attention or manipulate Or coerce, or because, or test limits, or because a kid is unmotivated. Um, None of those are true. Those all flow from a different set of lenses called kids do all if they wanna. Kids do all if they can, and kids do all if they wanna are two completely different sets of lenses, two completely different belief systems. If you believe a kid isn't doing well because the kid doesn't want to, then attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated, limit testing make perfect sense. And it then becomes your goal and your role in this kid's life to make the kid want to do well. And how do you make a kid want to do well? The tools of this trade are familiar to just about everybody who works in just about any special ed or often general ed classroom, especially in North America. Reward the behaviors you like so as to see more of them. Punish the behaviors you don't like so as to see less of them. And you are now in the business of making a kid want to do well, founded on the belief that the kid didn't want to do well in the first place. There are still way too many people wearing those old lenses. Those old lenses do not reflect what we now know, what the research has been telling us for 40 to 50 years about kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. What that research has been telling us is that they are lacking skills. They are not lacking motivation. If this kid could do well, this kid would do well. This kid would be doing well because kids do well if they can. That's a massive lens shift for many caregivers. It is crucial because many classrooms in which restraints and seclusions are still quite common are still relying on some form of reward and punishment program and some mechanism for keeping track of whether the kid should be rewarded or should be punished. Stickers, points, levels. One of the first things I noticed way, way, way long time ago when I was, um, before graduate school, when I was just getting experience in the field of psychology, I was working on an inpatient psychiatry unit as a staff member. One of the first things I noticed is that one of the biggest precipitants to challenging behavior was the loss of a level, the punishment, or not receiving an anticipated reward. So it's not like rewarding and punishing are benign interventions, they can actually set kids off. Now, there are many people out there who believe that, well, they'll they'll say, well, we don't punish, we only reward. I have seen just as many kids go off when they didn't receive an anticipated reward as I have seen kids go off because they were being punished. But all of this flows from a certain set of lenses. Many people are rewarding and punishing, most, in fact, with the best of intentions. So they often don't take real kindly to me being critical of that approach to intervention. Um, We need to be critical of that approach to intervention. We need to be open-minded. We need to take a close look at what we're doing. And if what we're doing is setting kids off, then even if we're doing it with the best of intentions, we may want to rethink what we're doing. Let me put that a different way. If the reward and punishment program is ultimately causing us to restrain and seclude kids, then we need to take a closer look at what we're doing. Kids do all if they can is a big lens shift for many people. I have a colleague, a very good friend at this point, who when she was hearing me speak for the first time, and this was in hindsight, she was telling me this story. She was telling me that her back stiffened up when she first started hearing me talk about my um, lack of enthusiasm for reward and punishment programs. Um, She said, but my back stiffened up, but I did keep listening. Uh, And now she's a big fan of collaborative and proactive solutions. So even if your back has stiffened up on our first key theme, our first big lens shift, Um, keep listening. Uh, In this model, you're not going to be focusing on behavior anyways, as you shall soon hear. And rewarding and punishing is all about behavior. As you'll also soon hear me say, one of the biggest reasons you don't want to focus on behavior is because behavior is late. But it all starts with our lenses. Big lens shift number two Doing well is preferable. Now, for me, as I always say, that is a statement of the obvious. Of course, doing well is preferable. A preference for doing well is why most of us do well most of the time. We prefer it. So do behaviorally challenging kids. Behaviorally challenging kids prefer doing well, too. Sometimes even more than the rest of us, because they're having such a hard time getting there. As I always say, the difference between a well-behaved kid Any behaviorally challenging kid is not that the well-behaved kid prefers doing well and the behaviorally challenging kid doesn't. That's incorrect. It's that the well-behaved kid has skills that the behaviorally challenging kid doesn't. Once again, this is about lagging skills, not lagging motivation. Kids do well if they can, not kids do well, if they want to. New practices. Don't forget those new lenses. But these new practices are going to be big. And as you've already heard me saying, we're not going to be focusing on behavior anymore because behavior is just the signal, just the fever. Just the means by which a child is communicating, I'm stuck. There are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. That's all behavior is the signal. If all we're busy doing is modifying behavior, then all we're busy doing is modifying the signal. What we're focused on in this model are the problems that are causing those behaviors. And solving them. Not behaviors and modifying them, the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. Many people get a little stiff backed over that one, too, because a lot of us, me included, were trained to believe that behavior, overt behavior, is the only thing that's observable. The only thing that's objective, the only thing that's quantifiable, not true. And by the way, because of that belief, many people have been busy obsessively counting behaviors for a very long time. Um, Behaviors are not the only raw material that is observable, objective, and quantifiable. The problems that are causing those behaviors are just as observable, just as objective, just as quantifiable. In this model, you are focused on those problems. You're not focused on the behaviors that are being caused by those problems. Now, just in case that gets people a little concerned in another way, many people, when they hear me saying that we're going to be focused on the problems that are causing the behavior, not the behavior itself, many people get concerned and think, well, if we're not focused on the behavior, then the behavior is not gonna improve. Not true. When you are solving problems in the ways that you'll be hearing me describe during this webinar, the research tells us the kid's behavior improves every bit as much as it would have if you were simply busy modifying the behavior. You lose nothing when you're solving problems with kids To tell you the truth, you have everything to gain because while modifying behavior may lead to what are often only short-term changes in a child's behavior, modifying behavior, rewarding and punishing, solves none of the problems that are causing that behavior. But the reverse is different when you're busy solving the problems that are causing that behavior, not only do the behaviors improve, problems get solved. Mm. This is going to require not only very different ways of doing things, solving problems, not modifying behaviors. The problems are the primary focal point of intervention, not the behaviors the problems are causing going to change the way we're doing business with these kids, it's going to help us all be safer, it's going to work better, but it's also going to require different assessment technology. You know what primarily gets assessed when people are dealing with a behaviorally challenging kid, not only in school, but also everywhere else? Behavior, the signal. We do behavior checklists, we do behavior observations, we do a functional behavior assessment, All so that we can come up with what's known as a behavior plan. All focused on the signal. All focused on the fever. Not in this model. That is a very big shift. Maybe the biggest. Yes, shifting from kids do all if they want it to kids do all if they can is big. Recognizing that this kid would greatly prefer to be doing well. Well. Big. But helping people shift from focusing primarily on the signal, the behavior, to the problems that are causing the signal, may be the biggest. Huge. If we do not make that shift, then we have relegated the people who are working with and living with behaviorally challenging kids to focusing only on the signal and focusing only on what's late. Because, and this will make sense soon, once again, the behavior is late. What we're going to need is an assessment instrument that helps us identify the information that's been missing. What's been missing? Well, one thing that has been missing is knowing what the kid's behavior is. We know what the kid's behavior is. That, we've been known that for five years. So behavior is not a mystery. Uh, we know what the kid's diagnoses are. He's probably got a bunch of them. If he's still behaviorally challenging, those diagnoses do tend to stack up, especially when things are not getting better. What's been missing is information about two areas in particular. What are this kid's lagging skills? If what the research has been telling us for 40 to 50 years is if this kid is lacking skills, then it sure would be good in helping people change their lenses to help them know what skills this kid is lacking. Not only that, to help them participate in the process of figuring out what skills the kid is lacking. Uh, Fortunately, the assessment instrument we will be covering briefly in this webinar uh, does help us identify the kid's lagging skills. What's the other piece that's been missing? What are this kid's unsolved problems? What is an unsolved problem? Well, that's what we call the problems that have been causing challenging behavior. We also call them problems that have yet to be solved. We also call them problems that are waiting to be solved. That's because they're still unsolved, and that's because caregivers have still been primarily focused on the kid's behavior, the signal. If we do not identify those problems, they will remain unsolved. What's the name of the instrument that's going to help us identify those two pieces of information? It's called the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. I'll be introducing you to it a little later in the webinar. Another big part of new practices is that the problem solving that we're going to be doing is collaborative, not unilateral. Unilateral. We adults tend to be real keen on problem solving of the unilateral kind. That's where the adult decides what the solution is and imposes it on the kid. Imposed solutions set kids off. Solutions where a kid has not been involved in um, coming up with the solution set kids off. Um, the problem-solving in this model is of the collaborative kind. It's something you're doing with the kid, not to the kid. And as I always say, the kid is probably going to be delighted to help you out. kid's been wondering for a very long time, how come we adults keep trying to make things better? Without the kid's input, without the kid's involvement, without the kid's ideas, without the kid's sign-off, Yes, one of the things that we're doing in this model is eliminating the things that are setting kids off. And when you eliminate the things that are setting kids off, they don't get set off and you dramatically reduce the things that you do when they do get set off. Restraint and seclusion included. In this model, you got a partner, a teammate, the kid. Now, the minute I talk about that. Many people say, yeah, but how would you do this with a very young kid? How young? Uh, We solve problems collaboratively with two- and three-year-olds. That young? Many people say, but how would you solve a problem collaboratively with a kid who's very compromised in the language processing and communication realm or a kid who's completely nonverbal? Mm, The good news about those kids is that they are communicating just not through our preferred modality, the spoken word, and we are communicating with them. So it's going to be the very same technologies that help us communicate with them about other things. Uh, Assistive technology, pictures, sign language. Those are going to be very helpful to us in our efforts to collaborate with kids who are nonverbal or very compromised in the language processing and communication realm, um, gonna be very helpful. New timing. Hopefully, you are not just imagining solving problems collaboratively with a kid in the heat of the moment. Hopefully you weren't doing that, but if you were doing that, if you're thinking, well, how am I going to solve a problem with a kid who's already heated up in the heat of the moment, emergently, reactively, the good news, 99% of what you're doing in this model is planned. Proactive. It's not reactive. As I tell many of the educators that I work with and look forward to working with again once the pandemic has subsided, I tell them frequently, I'm going to get you out of the heat of the moment. How do I help them get out of the heat of the moment? By helping them use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to identify the information that's been missing. What are this kid's lagging skills? What are this kid's unsolved problems? When we identify that information proactively, then we've set the stage for intervention to be proactive 99% of the time. The reason it's not 100% is because I'm leaving a little bit of room for surprises. Just remember, an unsolved problem is only a surprise the first time it happens. It's not a surprise after that. But we'll leave 1% for surprises. 99% of what you're doing in this model is planned and proactive beginning with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It sets the stage for all that problem-solving that I was talking about to be proactive. Just to go into a little bit more detail, what what the LSIP helps us answer are two questions. Why and when? As in, why are challenging kids challenging? Why is this challenging kid challenging? When are challenging kids challenging? When is this challenging kid challenging? Uh, Why are challenging kids challenging? You got the answer already, because they're lacking skills to not be challenging. Although that may be a hard sell for people who are hearing it for the first time, there's 40 to 50 years of research behind that one sentence Challenging kids are challenging because they're lacking the skills to not be challenging. When are challenging kids challenging? When expectations outstrip skills. That's right. When there's an expectation that a kid is having difficulty meeting. So a good synonym for unsolved problem is unmet expectation. And by the way, That's when we all look bad, and we all look bad sometimes. When do we all look bad? When the expectations being placed upon us outstrip our skills. It's good that the ALSEP is going to give us that information. It is not good that the ALSEP isn't even a known thing in many schools and facilities in North America and throughout the world. We've got to do something about that. Uh, It's the information that's been missing. And if we're still missing that information, we're still going to be talking primarily about the kid's behavior. And therefore, we're still going to be late. And late is when restraints and seclusions occur. Mm. It's not only the kid's behavior that we've been talking about. We've been talking about the rough summaries of the kid's behavior. We've been talking about their diagnoses too much as well. Um, But diagnoses don't really give you any good information about a kid's specific lagging skills and unsolved problems. So diagnosis is actually not all that useful either for helping us be proactive and early. What helps us be proactive and early? Knowing what this kid's lagging skills are, there's your lenses. And knowing what this kid's unsolved problems are, those very unmet expectations that have been setting this kid off time after time after time. Oh, he's predictable, all right once we have the information that we've been missing. In other words, once we figure out what a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, there are very few surprises left. He is a very predictable kid. Let's say 99% predictable, and therefore intervention should be 99% proactive. There's your new timing, but we're not done yet. This is a graphic that I created to show the cycle of restraint and seclusion. But it's not just the cycle of restraint and seclusion, it's the cycle of all these punitive things we do to kids after the fact, late. And if we want to dramatically reduce or eliminate our use of restraint and seclusion, as you've been hearing me saying, you don't want to be late, you want to be early. Crisis prevention, True crisis prevention is early. Crisis management is late. Um, The problem of course is that many people who believe that they have been trained in something known as crisis prevention have actually been trained in something that is really crisis management. The colors of the bubbles on this slide are significant. Everything in blue is early. Everything in red is late. Once again, you don't want to be late. You want to be early. What's early? Identifying an expectation that a student is having difficulty meeting. That's as early as you can get. Identifying the expectations that a student is having difficulty meeting, those unsolved problems. Because if you identify those unsolved problems early, proactively, you can solve them early, proactively and collaboratively and never find yourself in the red. I'm sorry to report that that is not what we mostly do. First of all, in way too many places, we're not yet identifying the kids' lagging skills and unsolved problems. So we don't even know what they are. Secondly, Because we don't know what those unsolved problems are, we are not solving them collaboratively and proactively. What are we doing instead? What we adults often instinctively do when a kid is having difficulty meeting an expectation, we wait till the heat of the moment when he's having difficulty meeting the expectation again, and we push, we push harder. We insist harder. Founded on the fascinating belief That pushing kids harder to meet expectations that we already know they cannot reliably meet enhances performance. That has not been my experience. My experience is that pushing kids to meet expectations we already know they cannot reliably meet does not enhance performance. It it elicits red bubble number two, behavior behavior. And now you're late. Like I said, behavior's late. Um, And if, what are those behaviors telling us what we already knew? I'm having difficulty meeting that expectation. I've been having difficulty meeting that expectation for three years. And y'all have been pushing me to meet that expectation that I cannot meet for three years. And I'm starting to get a little amped up about that because pushing me to meet that expectation has not moved me one inch closer to being able to meet it. And then when I have difficulty meeting it and I get upset about the fact that you're pushing me, you discover that I'm becoming escalated. Red bubble number three. By the way, this is, this is where caregivers crisis prevention, but really crisis management training is about to kick in. One of the big facets of crisis prevention, but really crisis management training is to recognize the signs that a child is becoming escalated. I don't know that many adults who have difficulty recognizing that a child is becoming escalated. And then what we're supposed to do is deploy our de-escalation strategies. Problem is, you are now even later. He's already hot. And um, therefore, your de-escalation strategies may actually not work very well, in which case you have now arrived at red bubble number four. You're going to lay hands on that kid. You are going to restrain him or seclude him in the belief that you are now keeping kids and yourself safe. First of all, please recognize, I know I'm being redundant here, you are now very late. But I also think it's a myth that you are keeping kids and adults and classmates safe. I'm actually aware of no research telling us that um, restraint and seclusion keep people safer. My experience, and yes, way back in the day when I was working on that inpatient unit, I did restraints, I did seclusions, Um, that's when people get hurt. Um, Kids die every once in a while being restrained. You know, way back in the day, didn't quite hit me over the head way back then, like it's hit me over the head these days. But back in the day, when I was working on an inpatient psychiatry unit as a staff member, um, I would leap into action when a kid got escalated. I would try to de-escalate the kid, and when that didn't work, and it frequently didn't, um, I would be pressed into action to either restrain the kid or put the kid in a locked or blocked door seclusion. I must tell you that um, one day when I was sitting on top of a kid, whispering in the kid's ear, as I was trained to do, if you don't calm down, we're gonna have to give you a shot. It occurred to me that this might not be best practice. Sitting on top of kids and whispering in their ear, if you don't calm down, we're going to have to give you a shot, isn't best practice. And even if you leave out the giving the kid a shot part, it's still not best practice. But then, then another thing occurred to me and this was experience. Um, Most kids got the shot. One of my first revelations in the field of mental health was that kids don't calm down, generally speaking, when big adults are sitting on top of them. I would leave the inpatient unit for the day, thinking that I had done my job. And then when I walked in the next day, another revelation All of the problems that caused the kid to become escalated in the first place and to exhibit behaviors that caused us staff members to believe that pinning the kid to the ground or throwing the kid in a padded room was a good idea, all of those problems were still there waiting for me when I arrived on the unit the next day. That's because restraints and seclusions don't solve problems. There's a lot of myths around restraints and seclusion. It's time for us to uncover those myths. A lot of things about restraint and seclusion that a lot of people believe are true, are not true. What keeps you safe? Using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which by the way is free. Using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, To identify a kid's lagging skills so that staff have the right lenses on and identify the unsolved problems so that we know what we're working on and solve those problems collaboratively and proactively so that once again, we never find ourselves in the red. We don't want to be doing crisis management. We want to be doing crisis prevention. We want to be solving problems. By the way, restraint and seclusion are not the only interventions that solve no problems and teach no skills. Detentions don't. Suspensions don't. Expulsions don't. Paddling doesn't. Timeouts don't. Stickers don't. Um, By my way of thinking, there's really not much choice here. If we wanna be proactive, if we want to prevent crises, we have got to identify the problems that are causing those crises and solve them before we find ourselves in crisis management mode yet again. Once those problems are identified, this is a very predictable kid and intervention can be 99% proactive. So, there's your new lenses, there's your new practices, there's your new timing. Now, let's dive a little deeper. And by the way, as Guy mentioned at the beginning, we'll be going to do questions at the end. I'm sure questions are percolating already, but we're going to keep going for another 45 minutes or so and then do some questions. Write those questions down if you think you're going to forget them. What are the two most important roles that an adult can play in the life of kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges? Two roles. Let's keep this simple. Role number one, figure out what that kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are. The information that's been missing. If we do not figure that out, we are in perpetual survival mode We are perpetually walking on eggshells, making this very awful decision. Do I wanna press forward with my expectations for this kid at the risk of having to restrain or seclude him when it gets ugly? Because I already know he cannot meet that expectation. Um, Or do I wanna just let it go and feel guilty because I'm not trying to get anything out of the kid? What an awful setup. You shouldn't be in that setup. You're not walking on egg cells. You should not feel like you're in perpetual survival mode. Role number two. Start solving those problems. Now, 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 here's the deal. Many of the kids who are getting restrained and secluded the most have lots of unsolved problems. Big piles of unsolved problems. These are expectations these kids have been having difficulty meeting for a very long time, sometimes as many as 30, 40, 50 different expectations that they've been having difficulty meeting. Those unsolved problems sure do accumulate when they remain unsolved. So we're not going to solve all of them in a week. We're never going to be working on more than three at a time. With a given kid. And that means that some of the unsolved problems we're going to consciously, deliberately, and strategically and proactively decide we're not going to work on that expectation with that kid right now. We got bigger fish to fry. So, a big part of this model is also about what I would call expectation management quite a far cry from behavior management. I'd rather you be in the expectation management business, not the behavior management business. Behavior is just a signal anyways. If this kid's got 40, 50 different expectations that he's having difficulty reliably meeting, we need to manage those expectations. We need to organize the effort. We also need to ask ourselves the question, what, what are we doing? Um, You mean that kid comes to school and is greeted every day by 40 to 50 expectations that he or she is having difficulty meeting that day? I wouldn't show up. Most of these kids are still showing up and being greeted with those 40 to 50 different unsolved problems that they have difficulty struggling with almost every day. We are going to have to manage those expectations for them. Some of those expectations we are going to solve collaboratively and proactively. The others of them we are going to set aside for now. Not forever, for now. When will we start working on those expectations again? Once we solve some of our higher priority expectations, I'll get into prioritizing soon. A few points about solving problems collaboratively and proactively. When you are solving problems collaboratively and proactively, as I've already mentioned, you and the kid are partners, teammates. You are engaging kids in solving the problems that affect their lives. Why why would you want to leave the kid out of the loop on that? You and the kid are together coming up with solutions that are a whole lot more effective and a whole lot more durable because you're not flying solo. You never needed to be flying solo. And best of all, and this is what the research coming out of Australia these days is telling us, get this, when you are solving problems collaboratively and proactively, you are simultaneously enhancing the skills that the kid is lacking. Truth is, you're really not on the hook for teaching those skills explicitly. Those skills are going to be enhanced just by engaging the kid in the process of solving problems collaboratively and proactively. the Primary activity in this model is problem solving. Don't worry, the skills will get taught, but not explicitly most of the time, just by engaging the kid in the process of solving problems collaboratively and proactively. Here it is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. We are not gonna spend a great deal of time on this, um, but I am gonna refer you to some some resources so that you can learn how to use it. Um, Down the left-hand side is a list of lagging skills, not an exhaustive list of lagging skills, a representative list of lagging skills. As I always say, if I had tried to be exhaustive about all the skills that the research tells us behaviorally challenging kids could be lacking, The LSIP would be 10 to 15 pages long, but you don't need 10 to 15 pages of lagging skills to change your lenses. You only need about 23 of them, and there's 23 lagging skills on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And the fact that there's a place to check off those lagging skills often misleads people into thinking that the LSIP is a checklist. It's not Well, then maybe it's a rating scale. Not that either. It's a discussion guide. I think those of us who work with behaviorally challenging kids are often asked to check too much. I think we're often asked to rate too much. And, of course, what are we busy checking and rating? Behavior. The signal. The LSIP is a discussion guide. A guide for bringing people together to discuss a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems. Those discussions take about 45 to 50 minutes for the average behaviorally challenging kid. In 45 to 50 minutes, we are going to figure, to identify the information that's been missing. Now, on the right-hand side is actually, believe it or not, as important as lenses are, the right hand side is even more important that's where we're going to be writing in or typing in because the LCIP is available on the lives in the balance website in an editable fillable format so that you can type instead of write and save and share electronically Um, if you are not familiar with the lives in the balance website you will be before this webinar is over www.lives, L-I-V-E-S, in the balance.org. That's where you'll find the ELSEP. It is also where you will find an absolute treasure trove of free resources to help you implement the model you're hearing about right now in your school, family, facility. Uh, there's nothing to buy on the website. It's all free, but that's where you'll find the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Who should come to the LSAT meeting? Let me make sure that's what I wanna cover next, yes. Who should come to the LSAT meeting? Uh, At a school, anybody who has anything to do with this kid. It has troubled me greatly that we often leave people out of the meeting. And by the way, when should this meeting take place? These these meetings take place already in schools. We just don't call them LSAT meetings. We sometimes call them student assessment team meetings. We call them student study meetings. Sometimes we call them a tier two meeting. I don't really care what you call a meeting. What I care about is that in that meeting, the primary thing you're spending time on is figuring out what this kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, because that's the information that we've been missing. I wouldn't spend a lot of time on diagnosis. I w- wouldn't spend a lot of time on behavior. I definitely wouldn't spend any time on adult theories about how this kid got to be this way. Stick to lagging skills and unsolved problems, and that meeting will take only 45 to 50 minutes. So who should come to the meeting? Well, the people we usually leave out. Anything any- Anybody who has anything to do with this kid, but including the paraprofessional, uh, the, the, the ed tech, the, the, the aid. It's always fascinated me that the person who's spending the most time with the kid often doesn't get to come to the meeting. The art teacher frequently doesn't get to come. The music teacher, phys ed, they don't get to come to the meeting. The bus driver frequently doesn't get to come to the meeting. When we do not invite them to the meeting, and by the way, it is worth the logistical hurdles to get people in on this meeting. Because when we don't, we relegate them to an approach to intervention I refer to as winging it. It's the winging it approach to intervention. And you know what, maybe you can get away with winging it. With a regular old kid, you cannot get away with winging it with a kid with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. Because we've been winging it, that we've been losing so many of these kids it's because we've been focused primarily on their behavior. That we've been losing a lot of these kids It's primarily because we have been using strategies that have not been helpful to them: detention, suspension, expulsion, paddling, restraint, seclusion. That we are still losing a lot of those kids. Um, those interventions flow from old lenses. Old practices and old timing, they are obsolete. What do you hope happens in an ALSIP meeting? You hope light bulbs go on. You hope people say, wow. As in, wow, that kid really is lacking a lot of skills. That is a beautiful wow moment especially when it is uttered from the lips of someone who wasn't thinking that when they walked into the meeting. Wow, no wonder what we've been doing hadn't been working. That is a beautiful wow moment, especially when it is uttered from the lips of someone who came into the meeting thinking, we should just keep doing what hadn't been working for the last three years, maybe it'll take at some point. This one often comes with a rather shaken up look attached. Wow, I'm kind of feeling bad about how I've been treating that kid. Now, what's that person all shook up about? Well, they are now simultaneously reflecting on how they've been treating that kid and what they now know about him, and they are coming to the recognition that those two do not square up. More wow moments. So you're saying he only gets upset when these unsolved problems pop up? That's right. And you're saying these unsolved problems don't pop up. We know they're coming. Well, that's right. Any unsolved problem you've written in on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is by definition predictable. Or you wouldn't have been able to write it in. And you're saying that if we solve these problems with him, he won't get upset over them anymore? right? And you're saying we don't have to wait till the heat of the moment to solve these problems with them. We can do it proactively, because we already know what they are, and we've already prioritized, right? Before we move on to prioritizing, I want to direct you once again to the Lives in the Balance website, lives, L-I-V-E-S, and the balance dot O-R-G, You wanna go to the top nav bar where it says CPS resources. You wanna scroll down to either the parents section or the educators and schools section. And the first thing you're gonna come to is the walking tour. There's a walking tour for educators and walking tour for parents. Parents, they're both configured similarly. Um, When you open the walking tour, Um, you're going to see that the second section is called Identify Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems and embedded within that section is a 45-minute audio recording to teach you how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Um, Before you use it, listen to the recording because folks who don't listen to the recording don't usually complete the LSIP correctly. And it would be really helpful if you completed the LSIP correctly. 45-minute primer on how to use it. Now you know where. Lives in the Balance website, CPS resources section. Scroll down to the parents and family section of the educators and schools section. Open up the walking tour. Go to the section that talks about identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems. Learn how to use it. Then make the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems the standard pre-referral triage instrument in your building. I think you're going to refer fewer kids for testing that way, a lot fewer. I think you're going to save time that way, a lot of time. I think you're going to save money that way. And I think you're going to save a lot of kids by figuring out the information that's been missing. As I mentioned, your next goal is to prioritize because as I also mentioned, this kid's gonna have a lot of lagging skills checked off, but as you've already heard, you are not on the hook for explicitly teaching those skills. As I always say these days, lagging skills are for lenses. You will never be talking with the kid about his lagging skills. You will be collaborating with the kid on solving problems. So what you are prioritizing are the unsolved problems, not the lagging skills. He also has a lot of unsolved problems written in. You're not going to be able to work on them all at once. As I've already mentioned, many kids who've been challenging for a very long time have 40, 50, 60 different unsolved problems. Um, You're going to have to prioritize. As I've also already mentioned, you will never be working on more than three unsolved problems at any particular given point in time. So now, which three? Here's my algorithm. Any unsolved problem that's causing safety issues is a high priority. I'm a safety first guy. Safety is a big deal in schools these days, as well it should be. It's also very hard to get people to collaborate on solving problems together. If one or both of them is feeling unsafe, safety first. If we don't have safety issues, we're either going with frequency, the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes most often, or gravity, the unsolved problems that are having the greatest negative impact on this kid's life or the lives of others. You get to pick three in the beginning, the three you've decided you're working on. Don't split hairs over which unsolved problems to start working on. It's actually more important that you get started. So what I always tell people is, if you can't decide which unsolved problems to prioritize, lay the LSIP on a flat surface face-up. Sharpen a pencil. Hold the pencil over the LSIP. Drop it three times. And wherever it lands, start there. How are you keeping track with the second sheet of the model, the problem solving plan also available on the lives in the balance website in an editable fillable format. So once again, you can type instead of write and save and share electronically. What you're seeing here on the problem solving plan is three columns, each representing a distinct unsolved problem, top box in each column, What is the unsolved problem? So once again, this is how we are identifying what we are working on right now with this kid and by process of elimination, what we are not working on right now with this kid. Next box is crucial. Who's taking primary responsibility for solving that problem with that kid? We've got to designate somebody. But that's not going to be that hard because the ideal person to be solving that problem with the kid is the person whose expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. Generally speaking, that is not the principal. That is not the assistant principal, And that is why this model has a wonderful track record for dramatically reducing discipline referrals. Because there's really no point in sending a problem to somebody who has no idea what the problem is and is really very ill-positioned to solve that problem. Principals and assistant principals are very well-positioned to extract a pound of flesh, but we should add extracting a pound of flesh to the interventions that solve no problems and teach no skills. Uh, the person whose expectation that kids have a difficulty meeting is also not the school counselor, not the school psychologist, not the school social worker. They're still there if you, they need, if you need them. Um, they might be helping facilitate problem-solving in the the building along with the assistant principal and principal. But they are not your go-to guys for problem-solving. They are facilitators. The ideal person to solve a problem with a kid is the person whose expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. And generally speaking, that is highly likely to be the classroom teacher or the aide or the paraprofessional or the art teacher, or the music teacher, or the phys ed teacher, or the bus driver. Um, Now what many of you are probably thinking is, he's definitely out of his mind. Where does he think we're going to find the time to do this? Um, You know what? Time is always the biggest consideration when schools in particular start thinking about using this model. It's not a big consideration two or three months in. It's a very big consideration in the beginning because I get it. Uh, Schools are very busy places. Um, We've made schools extremely busy places, um, which means that we're going to have to, we have an unsolved problem in our building. We don't have time to solve problems with our kids. Do do we really want to say that about our building? The, the, The school schedule was not designed around what's actually walking in the door these days. It was designed purely around academics. We we may have to fiddle with the schedule a little bit, but here's what's interesting. I actually find that time is not the major factor here. The major factor is commitment, because what I find, and we're hundreds of schools in at this point, is that when schools commit to identifying and solving problems collaboratively, And proactively with kids, Um, they find the time. They create the time. Now, I and my colleagues at Lives in Balance often help schools identify what we call buried time, before school, after school, during lunch, during recess, during the teacher's prep time, if the teacher has prep time. But most schools do have to come up with a system for providing coverage coverage. Um, And I've seen schools develop some very elaborate systems. This is where the principal, assistant principal, school counselor, school psychologist, school social worker could be extremely helpful, um, creating systems of coverage and sometimes providing coverage. Because if we don't find the time, we don't commit, then those problems will remain unsolved unidentified and unsolved and the kid is still going to be reacting to them and we're still going to be restraining and secluding the kids all right last part of what i'm going to be covering in this webinar before we turn to questions in approximately 23 minutes the last thing we need to cover is how we're going to solve those problems And one of the things I did a very long time ago, when I first wrote The Explosive Child, which would have been 22 years ago at this point, is identify the three ways in which we can handle unsolved problems with kids. But by the way, these three options are not merely related to adult kid problem solving. These are the three ways in which kids solve problems with kids. These are the three ways in which adults Solve problems with adults. These are the three ways in which nations solve problems with nations. A, B, C. Notice at the top, unsolved is underlined. That's because if a problem isn't unsolved, you don't need a plan. Uh, If a kid is brushing his or her teeth before going to bed at night as reliably and as well as you'd like, You don't need a plan. It's not an unsolved problem. It is a met expectation. No plan needed. Kid is doing his or her homework as well. And as often as you'd like him or her to, you don't need a plan. It's a met expectation. It is not an unsolved problem. No plan needed. But any expectation that kid is having difficulty meeting reliably, you need a plan and you have three options. Now, One quick note, you're only really using two of these options in this model. The third, Plan A, is up there just as a reference point because it's still very popular, unfortunately. The three plans are called A, B, and C. Let's start with Plan C. Plan C is where you are setting aside a particular unsolved problem, at least for now. Forever? Nope. For now. Many people hear that, and the first thing they think is giving in. No, there's no giving in in the entire model. Giving up? No, you're not giving up in this model. Prioritizing? There is prioritizing in this model. You've already heard about it. Plan C is the unsolved problems that you have once again consciously, deliberately, strategically, and proactively decided. We're not putting that expectation on that kid right now. We got bigger fish to fry. Plan C is huge because not only is Plan C where you are prioritizing, in the case of the kids who are being restrained and secluded the most, Plan C is where you are stabilizing. Because you see, any unsolved problem that you have removed from the kid's radar screen for now, any expectation that you've removed, won't set in motion a challenging episode because the expectation is off the table. For now, when will it come back after you've solved some of your higher priority unsolved problems? Yes, we are restraining and secluding kids frequently over expectations we already know they cannot reliably meet. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And if you have trepidation about temporarily at least removing an expectation, that's what IEPs are for. We don't want you to get in trouble for doing the right thing. Prioritizing is the right thing. Putting expectations on kids that we already know they cannot reliably meet that are going to cause them to become escalated that are going to cause us to restrain and seclude them makes no sense whatsoever. Plan C is huge um, for both prioritizing and stabilizing. Now, there's another very popular option for stabilizing kids. That's known as medication. But I honestly believe, because I've seen it happen, that we can reduce use of medication with Plan C. Which would I rather use to stabilize a kid? Uh, Plan C or an atypical antipsychotic medication? Definitely plan C. It has no side effects. Are there going to be kids who still need medication? Yeah. But I don't think as many. I just think there's not enough people who know about plan C. That leaves us with only two other plans, A and B. Both represent a way to solve a problem with a kid. There's just one massive difference between them. With plan A, you're solving the problem unilaterally. With plan B, you're solving the problem collaboratively. Which option sets kids off unilateral? Which option engages kids in solving the problems that affect their lives And does it proactively outside of the heat of the moment 99% of the time? That would be plan B. Are we allergic to plan A in this model? Not allergic, just don't think it's a great idea most of the time. But here's the example I always use. If a kid is about to dart in front of a speeding car in a parking lot, you're not doing plan C. You're not saying, well, we got bigger fish to fry. You're not doing plan B. You're late. I've noticed you're doing plan A. You yank on the kid's arm, you save his life. If he blows up, so be it. But if three weeks later, the kid has now darted in front of a speeding car an additional 17 times, and you've yanked 17 additional times, yes, yanking is working at saving the kid's life. Yanking is not working at solving this problem. You are going to need a different plan. And if you decide that parking lots are a high priority for this kid, you'll be using Plan B. And if you decide that parking lots are a low priority for this kid, right now, you'll be using Plan C. Once again, when will parking lots become a higher priority? When we've solved some of our higher priority unsolved problems. For now, Kid's not going to find himself with that expectation being placed upon him anytime soon. I'm going to skip plan A in the interest of time and jump to plan C. Just want to make sure you're clear about plan C because there are different things that people get worried about with plan C. And I'm probably going to give you a little bit more to worry about when I'm talking about plan C. Plan C, as you already know, is when you're setting the problem aside for now. There are two forms of Plan C, Emergency C and Proactive Plan C. Which form do you want to be using 99% of the time? Proactive Plan C, because once again, you have already used the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to identify lagging skills and unsolved problems. And you've already used the problem solving plan to prioritize. So you already know proactively what you're working on. And what you're not working on right now with this kid. Um, Emergency Plan C is when you put an expectation on a kid, he starts to get jacked up, and you just defuse it right then and there by saying, no problem, I've just removed that expectation. You don't got to do it. Okay. Proactive Plan C is where you are sitting down with the kid to come up with a plan, a collaborative plan, not to solve the problem, that would be plan B, but to come up with a plan for what things are going to look like with the expectation removed, at least for now. An interim plan. And that's a very important thing in a classroom because we can't just have the kid... Walking around the room while the rest of the class is working on an assignment that we have put into plan C for now. No, we're going to have to have a plan for what things are going to look like, and better for the kid to be involved in coming up with that plan. But just note that there's a big difference between coming up with a solution that is aimed at solving a problem and coming up with a plan for what things are going to look like with that problem removed for now. That's plan C. But what people get concerned about, this is amazing to me, given that we are in an era of differentiated instruction and um, universal design and and, uh, personalized learning, it fascinates me that people sometimes react to the fact that we are removing this expectation for one student and not another, or one sibling and not another. And this is where the fair does not mean equal principle comes into play. They're in a classroom in North America where fair means equal. In every classroom in North America, somebody's getting something somebody else isn't getting. What's that called? Good teaching. Totally consistent with those initiatives that I just mentioned in education. They're in a household in North America where fair means equal. In every household in North America, somebody's getting something somebody else isn't getting. What's that called? Good parenting. The definition of good parenting and good teaching is not treating everybody exactly the same. The definition of good parenting and good teaching is being responsive to the hand you've been dealt. The more we are responsive to the hand we've been dealt, the less restraint and seclusion we will be using. Now, let's take plan C to its most extreme level, Um, there are kids in our schools, usually in our special ed classrooms, who are not meeting any expectations right now. We don't think they can do much of anything right now. They are too unstable. They are not available for learning. They're behaviorally unstable. They may be medically unstable. Often the folks at school have no idea what meds the kid is on. Often the folks at school have no idea that a med change occurred yesterday that could be setting the kid off today. Let's take plan C to its extreme. What I've done with a lot of schools is help them create what we might call a stability designation. Often it's a special classroom. We're not using it in the heat of the moment just to stabilize a kid in the moment. It's a stability designation where we are saying our number one priority with this kid is stability. He's going to be in the stability designation for a little while until we can get him stable. Until, for example, we can make sure that the parents and the people who are doing the medicating are on the same page and getting permission for ourselves at school to communicate with the people who are doing the medicating. Medication can be a massive factor when it comes to whether that student is available for learning and whether that student is stable or unstable in a classroom. Um, And often uh, the staff in special education classrooms are flying blind. Cannot continue that way. That is a big change that has to occur. There has to be seamless communication between school and the person who's doing the medicating. Because nothing against parents, but but parents aren't at school. So they're not seeing what people are seeing at school. So they are not the best reporters to the medication person who is trying to make important decisions about what's going to be helpful to this kid. But the primary feature of the stability designation is that we are removing all of the expectations that we're setting this kid off. We are going almost exclusively with preferred activities because our number one priority is stability. Now, a lot of schools have been relying on inpatient units for stability, and they're not all that satisfied. A lot of schools put kids in very expensive outside placements for the purposes of stabilizing. Um, I think this is something school systems can do. We're talking about a separate program, separate staffing. You're going to actually save a lot of money that way. And I think you're gonna stabilize kids better than you may have been doing under present circumstances. That is what I would call plan C to its extreme. Because if we don't do that, the kid will remain unstable. We will continue putting expectations on kids that they cannot reliably meet. They will continue to exhibit behaviors that we feel is escalated or unsafe we will continue restraining and secluding them. Not only does restraint and seclusion teach no skills and solve no problems, restraint and seclusion doesn't stabilize either. You can get some more details on the stability designation on a new website that we created uh, at Lives in the Balance. Um, it's www.truecrisisprevention.org. Filled with free resources, lots of streaming video aimed at helping schools dramatically reduce and ultimately eliminate their use of restraint and seclusion. Finally, plan B. How do you solve problems collaboratively? With three steps. There are three steps that are involved in solving a problem collaboratively. You could try to do these three steps emergently, but what for? You've got the ELSIB, you've got the problem-solving plan. They come first. 99% of the problem-solving that you should be doing should be being done proactively. The three steps are called the empathy step, the define it all concern step, and the invitation step. The names of the steps, as I always say, don't matter that much. The ingredients of the three steps matter a great deal. What is the main ingredient of the empathy step? Information gathering. Gathering information from the kid so as to achieve the clearest possible understanding of what's making it hard for the kid to meet a particular expectation. Whether that's difficulty sitting next to Timmy during circle time, Or difficulty completing the double-digit division problems on the worksheet in math. Or difficulty coming back into the classroom for English after recess. Or difficulty keeping hands to self in the hallway on the way from the classroom to recess. Or difficulty standing in line waiting for the school bus after school. Or difficulty brushing teeth before going to bed at night or difficulty turning off the Xbox to come in for dinner. The empathy step is where you are gathering that information. Your number one source of information on what's making it hard for a kid to meet a particular expectation is the kid. No offense, but it's not the caregiver. Oh, I know we caregivers, we've got our theories. We often think we already know what's getting in the kid's way. The empathy step is where you discover that what you thought was getting in the kid's way is not what is getting in the kid's way. The define adult concern step. This is where the caregiver is entering his or her concern into consideration on the same unsolved problem. Um, Adult concerns usually fall into one or both of two categories, how the unsolved problem is affecting the kid. How the unsolved problems affecting other people. Um, that's usually the easiest and the fastest of the three steps. The invitation. This is where kid and caregiver are putting their heads together, collaborating on a solution. But a solution that must meet two criteria. Gotta be realistic meaning both parties can truly do what they're agreeing to do, gotta be mutually satisfactory, which means that the solution truly addresses the concerns of both parties, concerns you identified in those first two steps of Plan B. Now, uh, I knew I wasn't gonna have time to go into great detail about these three steps. So I'm going to go into some detail about the empathy step and then start to take some questions. Um, But by the way, um, if you feel like you are lacking on details in this hour and a half webinar, uh, the Lives in the Balance website is waiting for you and where's the first place you're going to go? The walking tour. As you already know, the empathy step is where you are gathering information from the kid so as to understand what's making it hard for them to meet a particular expectation. The empathy step begins with the words, with an introduction. And the introduction begins with the words, I've noticed that, and ends with the words, what's up? In between, you are inserting the unsolved problem that you wanted to be talking with the kid about proactively right now. Here's what it might sound like. I've noticed you've been having difficulty completing the double-digit division problems on the worksheet in math. What's up? Notice you've been having difficulty brushing your teeth before going to bed at night. What's up? Notice you've been having difficulty sitting next to Billy during circle time. What's up? I could go on forever. You get the basic idea. Here's why you want information from the kid. I've been telling this story a fair amount lately, but it's a good one. I was doing a podcast maybe, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 months ago. And the interviewer was telling me about his three-year-old daughter who was having difficulty brushing her teeth before she went to bed at night. And he was telling me that he thought he already knew what was making it hard for her to brush her teeth before she went to bed at night. He thought it was the taste of the toothpaste. So he was telling me this story. Fifteen different flavors of toothpaste later, she was still having difficulty brushing her teeth before she went to bed at night. So finally, he said, he did plan B. I remember thinking to myself, finally, you did plan B, and you're worried that plan B is going to take a lot of time? I could have saved you a lot of time and 15 different flavors of toothpaste. If you had just started with plan B, he did the empathy step. And what did he find out? Um, He found out that uh, she didn't like the way the water sprayed on her face when he was using the electric toothbrush as I said to him, now there's a concern that 15 different flavors of toothpaste could never address. He then put his concern on the table, and his concerns were related to teeth brushing of the usual kind. He didn't want her to get cavities. They hurt, and they're very expensive to fix, how it's affecting the kid and or how it's affecting others. The invitation They agreed that they would put a towel around her face when he was using the electric toothbrush. Who won? Both of them. Who lost? Nobody. What does winning mean? You both got your concerns addressed. Her teeth were getting brushed and she wasn't getting water sprayed all over her face in the process. Believe it or not, it's going to be the exact same three steps no matter what the expectation is that the kid is having difficulty meeting. Now a lot of people try to rank their unsolved problems by severity. Severity usually relates to the behavior the kid is exhibiting in response to the unsolved problem. A lot of times people will say well but we want to pick the simple unsolved problems first just to get some practice You're not going to know whether this is a simple or complex unsolved problem until you find yourself in the empathy step. I'd recommend the other algorithm, safety, frequency, gravity. That's how I would prioritize. After you say what's up, one of five things is going to happen next. Possibly number one, the kid is going to say something. Possibly number two, the kid's going to say, I don't know or I don't care. Possible number three, the kid's gonna say, well, I don't care is under the third one. Poster number three is the kid's gonna say something like, I don't have a problem with that. Possum number four, the kid's gonna say something like, I don't wanna talk about it right now. And posture number five, the kid's gonna get defensive and say something like, I don't have to talk to you. There you have them, the basic five. We obviously do not have time to go through all five. I'm just gonna go through the first one. He says something, where can you learn more about the other four? Lives in a Balance website. Um, This will probably be the last thing I cover. Uh, If the kid says something, the first thing the kid says is not going to give you the clearest possible understanding of what's making it hard for the kid to meet a particular expectation. So you're going to have to probe for more information. A process I call drilling. Drilling is without question the hardest part of doing all of plan B. As I always say, it's where most ships run aground. It's where most captains abandon ship, mostly because we didn't know what to say. Up on the screen right now as well as on the Drilling Cheat Sheet on the Lives in the Balance website are eight drilling strategies. So you'll never not know what to say. I'm only going to cover one of them, the most important one. Uh, It's your default drilling strategy. It's the strategy you're going to be using most often. It's the drilling strategy you're going to use when you don't know what drilling strategy to use. Reflective listening. Simply saying back to the kid whatever the kid just said to you. Um, Reflective listening, also known as mirroring, helps kids feel heard, helps kids feel understood, helps kids clarify their concerns, helps kids feel like their concerns are legit, keeps the kid talking. I could ask for no more from a drilling strategy, but there are seven more Why do you want this information so badly? Because you see, it is the absence of this information that is why this unsolved problem is still unsolved. Because we really didn't know. We thought we did, but we really didn't know what was getting in the kid's way. Which means that the kid is still having difficulty meeting this expectation. And if we're still putting this expectation on this kid, then we have moved into the red and we are probably going to be de-escalating a lot and we're probably going to be restraining and secluding a lot or using whatever other crisis management strategy we've been taught to use. And you now know that the key to solving those problems is to find out what's been getting in the kid's way all along. Don't be daunted by the fact that there are 40 to 50 unsolved problems that you've identified. I think you just did this kid the favor of a lifetime. You finally memorialized all of the expectations. This kid's been having difficulty meeting for a very long time. You did it and you prioritized it, which means you are now trying to tackle those unsolved problems incrementally two or three at a time, but here's the good news. If this kid has 40 or 50 unsolved problems, I promise you you're not going to have to solve 40 or 50 problems with this kid. Some are going to solve by solving others. I think you're going to end up solving 15 to 18 unsolved problems with this kid. I think, and this is true in many kids, but not all. I think that when you solve the top two or three You're going to see that things are starting to look a whole lot better. You got a partner now, the kid, y'all are teammates, and you've gotten yourself out of the heat of the moment, which is where restraints and seclusions occur. Let me go through a bunch of slides here that I knew I wasn't going to have the time to cover. I just knew that if I was going at lightning speed, I might be able to cover some of those slides, but Here are the websites you want to know about, and there's one missing. Lives in the Balance is the Lives in the Balance website. CPS Connection website is where you're going to find a lot of trainings. The Kids We Lose is where you will find information about the documentary film that Lives in the Balance produced that Guy mentioned at the beginning, Um, and the one that's missing from this is truecrisisprevention.org. Lots of free resources on the truecrisisprevention.org website and the the livesinthebalance.org website. Uh, If you're still hanging in there, I think that's plenty of content for one day. Let me shut up for a little bit and see what kind of questions have popped up.
0: Dr. Green, thank you. That was absolutely fantastic and, and an amazing introduction to uh, the collaborative proactive solutions model. And uh, saw a lot of great comments as we were going through things. But you know, I, I'll say personally, the the light bulb went off for me when I read uh, Lost at School. And you know, as I read your work, I'm sure I, I you know was was going through what a lot of the people were viewing this today were going through, which is just that moment where you're like, yes, yes, this makes sense. This, of course. Um, so this has absolutely been fantastic, and and all Thank of you, you that are that are watching, uh, you know, you you've really gotten the benefit of a really a fantastic introduction to this. And of course, as we mentioned, there there are the books. There's Lost at School and uh, the Explosive Child. Uh, so you have the ability between that and the uh, Lives in the Balance website to really take your knowledge to the next level. And and I can tell you that I've had the the privilege to attend uh you know a couple of events as well as do a training with with Dr. Green. And it really does change the way that you begin to think about things. So thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I know we've got some questions lined up, but but thank you.
2: Good. The, the, now the questions are in the chat bar or are you gonna
1: read them?
0: So I'll bring a couple questions up for us and, and some may be, um, and what I'll do here. In fact, let me just kind of put us uh Okay. Well,
1: I want to I just want to minute, uh, mention a couple things. Um, Christine, there's someone who wants your job. Um <laughs> Christine, it's nice to have you on and uh putting those um websites uh on the in the chat box for people to see. Um there was somebody who said they wanted to um they were going to publicize. They were going to make sure everybody knew about this. They'd make sure. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh <laughs> I, it is amazing to me. You've been doing this for a long time. And it's um, uh, it works. And why we cannot get that out there. And, and several questions came up through this about what is the reluctance of people? And, and I'm just making my head bloody over why, why the folks who are continuing to restrain and seclude and to use rewards and punishment um, are, are not looking at... Um, the data about what works and are not, um, are not willing to examine, and, and you've said it before many times, look at what you're doing if you're still doing the same thing over and over and you're still having the same problems. You're not examining people who are the ones that are the biggest talkers about data, let's look at data, let's look at the data, are the ones who are not paying attention to the data. I, I, it's just baffling. So um, those were some of the questions. But we got a lot of good questions about, um, uh, there was one in here that I thought, uh, Jennifer made a comment to me that I thought was particularly uh, a really great observation that is again baffling. Uh, some of the, the the schools that take the most um, challenging school uh, kids that should be the ones that are most expert at helping kids are some of the ones that treat them the worst, they're the ones that have the highest statistics for seclusion and restraint. On the other hand, we we have a perfect example in Virginia where we have one school with the same population that has no restraints, and then another school that has the highest level of restraints. So that's just an observation. We have several places that want you to come, and this is one. This is one. We have several places that want you to come and fix it, train everybody.
0: Yeah. And and this this was a specific question from another parent advocate, and Jennifer shared this. But, you know, it's kind of the question of, you know, they have a large school district and uh, kind of wondering, you know, how they can, you know, how much is it going to cost? What kind of time would it take? How can they work with a large district to... Uh, convince them that they need to change their mindset and be willing to implement something like the CPS model. So I guess kind of boiling this question down and, and, you know, large or small, uh, how have you found that people are able to, um, you know, get CPS introduced into their school systems and, uh, you know, what kind of uh, resources are necessary to do that?
2: Well, I think that data are important. And, um, you know, uh, just going back to some of the things that Beth was mentioning, I think a lot of schools are still training their staff in crisis management
1: mm-hmm.
2: under the guise of crisis prevention. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of uh, administrators are very proud of the fact that they've provided their staff with crisis what's called pr- crisis prevention training. And I think it's, a very, um, it's not that nuanced, especially when you think about early and late. And that's why I think that that uh, diagram is so important. This is not, not that nuanced right? Um, You're either early or you're late. And crisis prevention, crisis management is as late as you can get. But if you're calling it crisis prevention, um, a lot of people are um, thinking that what they've been trained in is crisis prevention when it's really crisis management. And that's ubiquitous in a lot of schools in North America. It's a very big problem. Um, But that's why early and late is so important. It's so crucial for us to emphasize the fact that by the time you're de-escalating and by the, time, by the time you're de-escalating, yes, you may be preventing a restraint or seclusion, but you are definitely no longer in crisis prevention mode anymore. He's already escalated. We've got to move the whole thing way earlier. And, you know, um, it it doesn't if people are getting way early and they're not using collaborative and proactive solutions to do it, as you both know, I'm good with that. Right. Just be early. Mm -hmm. If collaborative or proactive solutions helps you be early, I'm ecstatic. But if you get early another way, I'm just as ecstatic. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is mostly this is a lens issue. It's a training issue. How do you get the ball rolling in your school system? First of all, contact lives in the balance. and. Get on the phone with me or one of my colleagues and we're going to figure out how to do this in your school system as inexpensively as possible. I draw no income from lives in the balance. So I don't have a money interest in reducing restraint and seclusion. And by the way, I like it that way um, can never be accused of having a hidden agenda. My agenda, stop restraining and secluding kids, <laughs> period. Um We'll get on the phone. We'll figure out how to do this. My colleagues know that um, if you're working at Lives in the Balance to make a ton of money, you're probably working with the wrong organization <laughs> because we're going to figure out how to do this as inexpensively as possible for a school system. Now, if you're a parent, and we aren't daunted, by the way, by large school systems. Bottom line is we got to get some folks in the school system good at this model. That's what we got to do. And the goal is for them to train other people in the school system. So we don't even plan to be around for that long. We just need to help you create capacity so that you have some people in your school system who are good at this model. They'll train others. We don't need to be there for the whole show. We need to be there in the beginning to help you get the ball rolling. How do you get this in front of people? Well, as you both know, Lives in the Balance and you all are working on this, right? Um, you all are working on it. Uh, we're working on it too. Uh, is Christine, is the Christine that you mentioned my Christine? Yes. yes. My Christine. She's <laughs> probably not calling her my Christine. Uh, she's not my Christine. She's Lives in the Balance, is Christine. Um, she's our director of advocacy. And Lives in the Balance is moving quickly, as you all are. And that's why we're collaborating with you mm-hmm. into the advocacy realm to help parents know how to put this in front of their school system know how to put data in front of their school systems, know how to highlight the fact that restraint and seclusion is counterproductive, unnecessary. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know what? Um, We got to be out there saying this stuff. That's Mm -hmm. why it is so great that you all are there. And that's why we're trying to do our part at Lives in the Balance. Um, Bottom line is at an Individual school level, I recommend that parents talk to the person who, in the building who they think is most likely to feel strongly about the same issues because every building is different so that they can give you the lay of the land in your building so you know who to talk to. But ultimately, ultimately, this often comes down to the school board. Sometimes it comes down to an individual principal. But we got to start making a little noise. we just got to do it as collaboratively as possible we don't have to create enemies doing this. We can do this collaboratively with data and persuasion.
0: Yeah, and I, I can speak for that being effective, you know, from my own experience in, in Maryland uh, and, and working with you and working with Lives in the Balance. And, and we now have, um, you know, a system that is going through training. Um, and, and you know, I think there are things that we can do as individuals as well. You know, that that person that Dr. Green referred to, you know, uh, I can't tell you how many copies of Lost at School I bought and, and have given to people uh, just to read. And, uh, you know, beginning to get someone that uh, this resonates with, uh, it's amazing then that you can begin to build some momentum. So there, there's definitely things that we can do as individuals as well. Uh, I work with another parent who provided copies for her entire IEP team, and they are now doing an ALSOP-flavored a, a uh, IEP in, in that particular student's case. So definitely things that that we can do. Had a question here from uh, Jennifer asking if it was ever too late to start these important ideas.
2: You know, I saw a great bumper sticker once. I wish I knew where it came from. It said, "Never. it's never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> um, we're, we're using collaborative and proactive solutions in adult psychiatric facilities. We are using collaborative and proactive solutions in adult prisons. Same effect, because mm-hmm. it is, by the time somebody is in a, an adult psychiatric facility or an adult prison, those unsolved problems are even older. I'm not talking about the chronological age of the person. I'm talking about the expectations they've been having difficulty meeting for 12, 15, 20, 30 years. That is tragic. Mm -hmm. And they are also costing us a fortune. Yes, there are some people who are very impaired, but I hate seeing somebody cost us a fortune cause a lagging skills and unsolved problems that have yet to be identified. And because of archaic methods of intervention that solve no problems and teach no skills. That's a real shame.
1: Now, Ross, I was going to ask you, are you talking about, (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't go here. I was going to ask you, are you talking about the uh, guards or the prisoners? (laughs) Did you hear what I said?
2: I did. Um, You know what? Prison guards are trained a certain way. Uh-huh. staff on inpatient psychiatry have trained a certain way
1: mm-hmm.
2: there are inpatient units that no longer do restraint and seclusion those staff mm-hmm. have been trained a certain way right mm-hmm. and they are safe
1: safer mm-hmm. right yeah I mean the reason I bring that up is because you know I did all that, that research on the school to prison pipeline and I think there's so many so many prisoners who are there because of things that were incidental that were they got in the system because of things that were, so many got in there because of lagging skills. Um, and so uh, I, it's just tragic to me. But I also think about, I, I, it was through the Virginia Treatment Center for Children that I learned about you, which is a restraintless, seclusionless, inpatient psychiatric facility, um, which some of the people in are in my area, could not wrap their hands around that you could have an inpatient facility that doesn't use restraint of seclusion. Proof
2: that it can be done.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, Beth, your your point is a really good connection between uh, the kids we lose. So the, the film that Ross had mentioned earlier, and I would encourage yeah. everyone out there, if you haven't seen this, to, to watch it, because, you know, this this shows us the, the cost. You know, this shows us, you know, Dr. Green's talking about what we can do to to help these kids. But if we're not helping these kids, you know, um, as Beth mentioned, what can happen with these kids not having their needs met and eventually ending up kind of taking the school to prison pipeline and, and ending up... Um, In our jail systems, and again, uh, with very bad outcomes. So, we certainly wanna be mindful of that. And again, would encourage you to watch that if you haven't seen that already.
2: And just to drive the point home in, in a very simple way you know, there's a tendency to blame. There's a tendency to blame the kid, there's a tendency to blame the parents, there's a tendency to blame the schools. This is blameless. We are all bringing, we are all contributing to the problem of the school to prison pipeline. If the kid is contributing, it's lagging skills and unsolved problems. If the school is contributing, it's because of intervention practices that are not well suited to what that kid actually needs. We can do something about both of those. We can change our intervention practices so that we are doing a better job of addressing what's really getting in the kid's way.
0: Great. I'm sorry, Beth, I was gonna bring up another question here real quickly. Um, Somebody asked if we could translate lagging skills identified on the ALSOP to specific problems. Uh, I could make a separate list of problems, but it's hard to connect them. So can you talk a little bit about how you connect those two things?
2: Don't connect them. Don't connect them. Lagging skills are for lenses and lagging skills are prompts to help you think of unsolved problems. That's all lagging skills are. You should put no effort whatsoever into connecting an unsolved problem with the lagging skill that you think causes it. Don't make that connection. It's, it's going to cause more work for yourself and more confusion. Lagging skills are separate. Unsolved problems are separate. You're doing them together because lagging skills, it turns out, are excellent prompts for helping think people think of unsolved problems. That's it. Otherwise no connection, none needed. They're both true.
0: Great. Uh, I had a question here about any new books in the works. <laughs> this is, Who's Lisa Stevens? I have no <laughs> idea. No idea. <laughs> Shares a similar name.
1: She's a beautiful woman with a beautiful daughter there. But,
0: but, uh, yeah. I will tell you that she has a son that is a big fan of yours as well.
2: <laughs> well, good. Uh, and and I have him and, and her who I haven't met. Um, But if if she's connected to you somehow, uh, then I'm a (laughs) big fan, just through osmosis. There is a new book in the works, um, but it's a novel. Um, And uh, if I'm lucky, uh, well, it's not going to be lucky. It's being sent to publishers soon, like within days. um, And hopefully it will be out within the next six to 12 months. And it is relevant to this topic, but not in a very direct way. Um, I can't say anything about it yet because it hasn't uh, actually been, no one's agreed to publish it yet, but we haven't tried yet. Um, But there are, um, I'm in the midst also of um, revising Lost and Found, which is one of the books for educators that will be revised. I'll be done with it within the month and that'll probably be out within four to six months. And then I'm going to be working on a new book for clinicians to provide the most current rendition of the collaborative and proactive solutions model, but it will also have a very large section in it about preventing and eliminating restraint and seclusion in schools and facilities.
1: Well, that all sounds fabulous. Excellent. I, I would like to say one more thing because um, I came to this as a parent and your comment about the no blame, no shame, that was one of the things that hooked me when you talked about the parents. Um, I can't remember how you, that rolls off your tongue about the, uh, the blame that comes to them. Um, but I, I, uh, your compassion that you have for parents, and there were a lot of things that, um, through the empathy stage and all of that, I, I was a fixer. I mean, I grew up in a family of fixers. You wanted to have the, you wanted to solve the problem. Um, and it's through this, the collab the the part the B plan B that you learn how to listen and, and my granddaughters teach me how to listen and just shut up and listen. Um and and it's just makes you so much better at, at working with everybody you work with. Um so that that is I, I'm grateful, just very grateful for that. Um, well
2: thank you. And you know what I've always said that listening is the purest form of empathy. Mm-hmm. And empathy is what the novel is about, or at least the lack thereof. Um, And here's the beautiful thing. Who's learning how to listen in the empathy step? Caregivers. Who's learning how to listen in the define adult all concern step? The kid. What do we do with all that listening uh, now that we know what each other's concerns are? We make sure that each other's concerns get addressed. And where's that done in the invitation?
0: I wanted to bring up another. This is more of a comment than than a question, but uh, from Kelly here that I'm a school counselor implementing CPS at my school with great success, which we love to hear. Uh, We started slow and small, one student with one unsolved problem, and we grew from there. Uh, We now successfully changed our entire climate culture and the way we view challenging behavior. And and that's exactly, I guess, what the goal is here. It's, It's great to see.
2: Kelly, uh, now that I just announced that Guy's wife was my new favorite woman <laughs> I've ever met, but Kelly has just taken her place. <laughs> because anybody who makes this happen in a school and changes the culture of a school um, deserves a massive hug and is owed a tremendous debt of gratitude from all the kids and teachers and parents who are associated with that school.
0: That's great. So we have time for just a couple more here. Um, um, here's one that was asking, are there any book study um, uh, workbooks or short videos like today's video that would help teachers facilitate CPS studies at schools for teachers and parents? And I know you've kind of addressed that, but if you want to mention that again.
2: You know, there, there might someday be a workbook to accompany all of the information that's on the truecrisisprevention.org website, but then we'd have to charge for it. And all the resources on the truecrisisprevention.org website are free. And I'd rather give it away for free. Um, so that's really the place to go and um, for free resources on the model. What's in the pipeline? Not sure, because um, we are very dedicated to, by the way, I think that if a school dedicates itself to restrict, reducing restraint and seclusion they can get a 50% reduction in the first year. I think just by setting that as a goal, you can reduce restraint and seclusion by 50%.
0: Mm -hmm. The
2: second 50% that's tougher. There you're going to need to change your lenses, change your practices, change your timing. Um, But just deciding that you're going to do it is such a huge first step. There will be lots of resources available for people to do it, they're in the pipeline, exactly what it's going to look like moving uh, moving forward, not completely sure. Um, we've thought about a workbook. Right now, it's all on truecrisisprevention.org. And we will continue building that website out as people let us know what they need more of.
0: Okay, great. I uh, just want to bring up, um, I'm not going to say you're Christine, but Lives in the Balance Christine <laughs> uh, shared with us uh, that they're doing a screening of the Kids We Lose on May 13th and 14th, followed by... Uh, discussion with Dr. Green, and that the link can be found on the Kids We Lose page. So that's another fantastic opportunity to to follow up from here and uh, get to uh, see more from Dr. Green. I'm gonna take one more question here, and we're gonna have to get wrapped up. And this is kind of a question that I think you've addressed to some degree previously. Um, in this case, uh, Michelle's saying the special education director of our school district told me he would build a seclusion room for my son if need be. How do we begin uh, eating that elephant?
2: What does eating that elephant mean exactly? Does it mean getting rid of it?
0: I, I think it means kind of taking the step-by-step approach of, oh, of you know, an elephant, like such it. a big thing to, to tackle. You know, uh, I don't want to
2: build a seclusion room for your son. Um, your son might need a quiet place to go. What I want your son's school to do is fill out, please, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Figure out what expectations your son is having difficulty meeting. Have staff learn how to solve those problems with your son collaboratively and proactively. And I'm hoping that a year from now, you won't even be thinking about a seclusion room. There's the elephant. Those two steps, not the seclusion room. The assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, solve those problems collaboratively and proactively. There's your elephant. Now that I know what the expression means.
0: And you mentioned before, if someone's interested in bringing this system to their school, that they can contact Lives in the Balance and that you can uh, help point them in the right direction as well.
2: We will help them out and we will get them there and it's not going to cost them a lot of money.
0: Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, I want to wrap up now. But again, thank you so much. I think we could probably go on for another hour with with questions. Um, And I hope that maybe we can have you back another time. And, uh, you know. Uh, cover some more. Uh, But this has absolutely been fantastic and and really appreciate, you know, your dedication to this, the dedication. You know, you mentioned the staff at the Lives in the Balance earlier, uh, and I had the opportunity to to work with uh, a number of folks there. Uh, and just amazing uh, group of people and really appreciate all that you're doing and appreciate the focus on, on helping to change this. I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately there was another death due to restraint just recently. And, uh, you know, it breaks my heart to see that, uh, especially knowing that there are things that we can be doing to, to change that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Green, for all that you're doing.
2: Thanks for inviting me to do this thank and Thanks to you and Beth for all that you're doing for this cause.
0: Thank you so much. I just want to share one quick announcement before we uh, sign off here, uh, and that is that uh, we have we have more of these sessions coming. Uh, we have uh, next week, uh, next Thursday, same time, uh, we have uh, Christopher Feltner, who will be talking about, uh, he's, he's got a talk, which is patients in a time of panic, uh, talking about these trying times that we're in right now, but also how to give families and caregivers an understanding of what trauma is, how it affects the brain, and how it can affect behavior. So that should be a great session as well. So please uh, try to come back and join us next week. And uh, we're gonna try to continue to have some uh, great sessions. Uh, So welcome you again to uh, join us and thank you. We'll see you again next week.